Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Saints Peter and Paul, pray for us. Thank you, Father. Our speaker tonight is a native of England. Joseph Pierce is director of book publishing at the Augustan Institute and editor of the St. Austin Review, editor of Faith and Culture, series editor of the Ignatius Critical Editions, senior instructor with Homeschool Connections and senior contributor at the Imaginative Conservative. His personal website is jpierce.co. He's an internationally acclaimed author of many books, which include bestsellers such as The Quest for Shakespeare, Tolkien, Man and Myth, and The Unmasking of Oscar Wilde. Joseph Pierce is a world-recognized biographer of modern Christian literary figures. His books have been published and translated into Spanish, Portuguese, French, Dutch, Italian, Korean, Mandarin, Croatian, and Polish. He's hosted two 13-part television series about Shakespeare on EWTN and has written and presented documentaries on EWTN on the Catholicism of the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. He has participated and lectured at a wide variety of international and literary events at major colleges and universities in the U.S., Canada, Britain, Europe, Africa, and South America. Welcome <laughs> back to the ICC. So it's great to be back uh, again um, with the ICC and all the wonderful things that uh, the Institute of Catholic Culture is doing. I'm honoured to be asked to be giving this lecture this evening, which is on um, uh, entitled Mark the Music, uh, an introduction to the poetic voice of William Shakespeare. And I'm going to begin with uh, uh, six lines from his play Merchant of Venice to, to explain the first part of the title. The man that hath no music in himself, nor is not moved with concord of sweet sounds, is fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils. The motions of his spirit are dull as night, and his affections dark as Erebus. Let no such man be trusted. Mark the music. All right, so we're going to mark the music this evening. Um, and... Um, I'm going to explain that particular quote and take it in this broader context later in the lecture. So I'm going to uh, resist the temptation to do so now. But it, as would be appropriate to, to lead us through things, we'll begin with defining our terms. So we, uh, you now see why we got the, the part mark, the music part of the title. But what is a poetic voice? Um, and um, 
in, in order to discuss that, let's look at the adjective there. Uh, poetic, poet, poetry. If you look on Wikipedia, which, you know, is, is uh, <laughs> not the most reliable place for reliable information, um, the first thing that comes up, Wikipedia, under poesis, which is the Greek word, which literally means to make or to create, um, uh, under poesis is the activity in which a person brings something into being that did not exist before. Now, I thought only God could do that. <laughs> only God could create things ex nihilo, okay? The, the, the poetry is not the same thing. God is, God is the poet, and he, and he can certainly bring things into being that did not exist before. We are poets with a lowercase p because we're made in God's image. If God is the poet, we're also poets. In other words, God's the creator. We have within ourselves creativity. It's part of the mark of the image of God in us, the music. We mark the music because the music is the mark of God in us, the mark of the divine image. So, but what we do when we, when we, um, uh, use our poetic gifts and use our poetic voice is to bring things into uh, bring new things into being uh, from things other things that already exist. So uh, that's what uh, so that's what Tolkien calls subcreation to distinguish between creation, which is the preserve of God, bringing things into being from nothing. Subcreation, we bring things into being from other things that already exist. And the example I like to use is um, the example of a landscape artist. A landscape artist uh, will use um, uh, the light from the sun, the landscape, the trees, perhaps the buildings, perhaps some cows, perhaps a river, whatever's there, some clouds in the sky. But his eyes, his hands, an easel, a canvas, some paintbrushes, some oils, some watercolors, all things which exist already. But using his poetic gifts, he will bring something new, this, this uh, painting, into being. Okay, so let's go into Shakespeare's time now and to discuss uh, poetry and the poetic voice. In 1595, when um, Shakespeare was in the midst of writing his plays, um, uh, there was a, a work published by Sir, uh, Sir Philip Sidney called A Defense of Poetry. Now, Sir Philip Sidney was not, would have been no great friend of William Shakespeare, not least because he married the daughter of Sir Francis Walsingham. Sir Francis Walsingham was Queen Elizabeth's spy master, who uh, Shakespeare satirised as Polonius in Hamlet. Um, but nonetheless, they did have something in common here because the defence of poetry was written as a response against attacks on uh, the stage, upon plays, upon drama. And particularly in Shakespeare's time, there was the rise of the Puritans. And the Puritan movement was opposed to music, as opposed to music in the liturgy. It was trying to stop the use of Gregorian chant and polyphony in the liturgy. Uh, it uh, opposed the stage and drama um, and the arts generally. Well, you know what the Puritans are. So, but these were, they, these were very much a, a political force. Now, Shakespeare denotes the Puritan characters in his plays, normally by making it clear they don't like music. Um, so Malvolio in Twelfth Night, Malvolio means ill will, for starters, right? Malvolio uh, is marked, denoted as a Puritan because, he, because of his hatred of music. Uh, in The Merchant of Venice, um, there were 
Shylock is superficially Jewish, but there were no Jews in England, virtually no Jews in England in Shakespeare's time in the late 1500s because they'd been expelled from England by Edward I 300 years earlier. So in Shakespeare's time, the moneylenders, the usurers, were the Calvinists because the Catholic Church still condemned usury, but John Calvin said that usury was okay. So in, in Elizabethan London, the usurers, the moneylenders, were the Calvinists. So to Shakespeare's audience, Malvolio is a Puritan. Shylock is a Puritan. So that um, what you realize here is that these people wanted to close down the theatres and succeeded in doing so uh, a, few, uh, a few years after Shakespeare retired. Uh, they even banned Christmas once they came to power after the Civil War in England. So, so, so Philip Sidney and Shakespeare find themselves on the same uh, page here. And so let's look at what Sir Philip Sidney says about poetry uh, and defending poetry, because then we're going to move on to Shakespeare's poetic voice. But since the authors of most of our sciences, and by that he means sciences in the older sense of the word, scientia in Latin, knowledge, so it includes theology and philosophy, uh, as well as the physical sciences. But since the authors of most of our sciences were the Romans and before them the Greeks, let us a little stand upon their authorities, but even so far as to see what names they have given under this now scorned skill, to the scorned skill of poetry. Among the Romans, a poet was called Vartes, which is as much as a diviner, foreseer, or prophet. So the, the, the Roman word, the Latin word that the Romans used for a poet were, was Vartes, which actually has a, 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 the mark of the prophet or the seer or the sage in it, the storyteller, the soothsayer, the truth teller. And then he, and then he quotes the ultimate authority um, and may not, I presume, a little further to show the reasonableness of this word Vartes and say that the Holy David Psalms are a divine poem. So basically he, he tells us that Holy Scripture sanctions and sanctifies poetry and uses the Psalms of David as an example of that. And now he goes to the Greek word. But now let us see how the Greeks named it and how they deemed of it. The Greeks called him a poet, which name hath as the most excellent gone through other languages. And poet means creator or maker. Only the poet, disdaining to be tied to any such subjection, lifted up with the vigour of his own invention, doth grow and affect another nature in making things either better than nature bringeth forth or quite anew, forms such as never were in nature. And then he gives examples from uh, ancient Greek literature. Nature never set forth the earth in so rich tapestry as diverse poets have done, neither with so pleasant rivers, fruitful trees, sweet-smelling flowers, nor whatsoever else may make the too much loved earth more lovely. Her world is brazen. The poets only deliver a golden. Well, I disagree with Sir Philip Sidney here. Um, I, I think it's, uh, it's, um, it, it was um, uh, Joyce Kilmer, of course. Joyce Kilmer, the American poet's most famous poem, uh, the, the Tree, where he talks about, you know, that he's only a poor poet. Only a god can make a poem like a tree. Um, we, our subcreation is a poor imitation of, um, of God's creation, except 
uh, and this is that this is an, uh, uh, an example I give to to show this. We'll tell a story. It's a literature lecture, so we'll do it by way it means of telling a story. Once upon a time, because all good stories begin that way. Once upon a time, there was a rock, and it was a really beautiful rock. But the problem was that nobody had ever seen it because it was buried 15 feet under the ground. But one day, someone came along and dug the rock up. And then it could be seen. And they said, yes, this is indeed a very beautiful rock. But then someone came along and said, that's not just a beautiful rock, that's the beautiful rock. And that person stopped to do things with the rock. And today, when you go to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome and you go through the main entrance and you look to the right at the first uh, side chapel and you see uh, um, Michelangelo's Pieta of the Blessed Virgin cradling her crucified son in her uh, arms on her lap, you see what a poet can do. Poet, of course, in the broader sense of the word meaning creator, what a poet like Michelangelo can do. And everybody who's looked at that rock since then has prayed, even atheists, in the sense that, uh, uh, at least those that still have appreciation of beauty, um, in the sense that they, their minds are edified, their hearts are edified, their minds are lifted up to God. Definition of prayer is lifting up your mind and heart to God. You're being moved in the right direction. From wherever you're starting from, you've been moved in the right direction by the beauty of such poetry. And then I, I'm going to summarize this. I do want to go on to Shakespeare because uh, Anna Mitchell is right. I could speak on Shakespeare for five hours and I've got to get onto him fairly soon so that I can get at least some of the things I want to say said. Um, but Sir Philip Sidney says that, that, um, that art is, that poetry is used of the imagination, but rather give right honor to the heavenly maker of that maker who having made man to his own likeness then gives him the gift of creativity himself. And art builds upon nature in the sense that it asks, moves us from what is to what ought to be, from the imperfect to the perfect. And then he says there are three types of poetry, divine poetry. And he uses again the example of David, he uses the example of Solomon, he uses the example of the Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, um, Moses and Deborah in their hymns, the writer of the book of Job. Um, etc. Good examples from scripture. And he says somewhere else, he, uh, he talks about Christ's parables as being works of the imagination. These people don't exist. Second time is philosophical poetry, which is using poetry to lead us towards morality and an understanding of reality. And then there's the poetry space is there to lead us from uh, facts to truth and from the, the real to the ideal, from the is to the ought to be. Certainly, even our Saviour Christ could as well have given the moral commonplaces of uncharitableness and humbleness as the divine narration of Divas and Lazarus, or of disobedience and mercy as that heavenly discourse of the lost child and the gracious father, which by the learned divines are thought not historical acts, but instructing parables. In other words, these are works of fiction that Christ presents us with works of fiction, the, the parables, the power of the prodigal son, in order to uh, teach us great truths. Let's move on. 
to Shakespeare proper. Now we've talked about Sir Philip Sidney, and that's 1595 and Shakespeare's actually writing. But now I want to talk about how Shakespeare was urged to um, use his poetic voice for the good of the church by uh, the Jesuit St. Robert Subtle, whom he knew uh, almost certainly very well. So shortly before his capture in July 1592, so um, let me explain here, there's no point reinventing the wheel. This is my book, Shakespeare on Love, um, seeing the Catholic presence in Romeo and Juliet. But this is why I talk about uh, Sir Robert Subtle's role in getting Shakespeare to use his poetic voice for the church. Shortly before his capture in July 1592, Subtle had been working on a manuscript of his poems that penned three separate dedications for different sections of his work. The first being a preface addressed to the author's loving cousin. Since Subtle and Shakespeare were distant cousins, it has been conjectured that the preface was addressed to Shakespeare, though others have suggested that the cousin in question was perhaps Southampton. The Earl of Southampton was Shakespeare's uh, patron uh, and a very uh, devout, resolute, recusant Catholic who had Sir Robert Subtle as his confessor. Since Subtle's brother and sister had each married Southampton's first cousins. Either way, the preface itself is an appeal to poets in general, or perhaps to Shakespeare in particular, to use their God-given talents in the service of the giver of them. And now I'm quoting from the Jesuits of Robert Subtle. Poets, by abusing their talents, are making the follies and feignings of love the customary subject of their base endeavours have as so discredited this, this faculty that a poet, a lover, and a liar are by many reckoned but three words of one signification. The devil hath possessed most poets with his idle fancies, for in lieu of solemn and devout matters to which in duty they owe their abilities, poets now busy themselves in expressing such passions as serve only for testimonies to what unworthy affections they have wedded their wills. And because the best course to let them see the error of their works is to weave a new web on their own loom, I have here laid a few coarse threads together to invite some skillfuller wits to go forward in the same or to begin some finer piece, wherein may be seen how well verse and virtue suit together. Blame me not, good cousin, though I send you a blameworthy present in which the most that can commend it is the goodwill of the writer. Okay, so um, such an exhortation to poets to wed, this is me again, such an exhortation to poets to wed their verse to virtue, coming as it does from a Jesuit priest, may be a little surprise perhaps, and may seem to have little direct relevance to Shakespeare per se, as distinct from poets in general. But if this preface is taken in conjunction with another dedication by Subtle, this time addressed from the author to the reader, a picture begins to emerge that perhaps the Jesuit had Shakespeare specifically in mind. I'm quoting again now from St. Robert Subtle. Still finest wits are stilling Venus's rose in pain in toys, the sweetest veins are spent. To Christian works, few have their talents lent. You heavenly sparks of wit, show native light, cloud not with misty loves your orient clear, favour my wish, well wishing works no ill. I move the suit, the grant rests in your will. 
Again, there is nothing at first sight that makes this new exhortation specific to Shakespeare. From the late Renaissance onward, poets and artists had looked to pagan antiquity as the fire for their muse and had increasingly turned their backs on the Christocentric muse of their medieval forebears. Why should we conclude that such a com complaint about the finest wits wasting their powers on pain in toys has anything to do with Shakespeare in particular? The clue is to be found in the first and last lines of Southall's verse as quoted. The line about the finest wits distilling Venus's rose has been seen as a reference to Shakespeare's poem, Venus and Adonis, especially when coupled with the assumption of a pun on Shakespeare's name in the last line. I move the suit, the suit, the grant rests in your will. In other words, Southall has made the request that the finest wit of the poet should be employed as something worthier than the pagan toys of Venus, but that the granting of the crest rests with will. The fact that Southall's suit in the final line is said to rest in your will has caused some observers to surmise that this dedication is not addressed to Shakespeare directly, but to Southampton as Shakespeare's patron. Further evidence. This evidence raises eyebrows, but still fails to convince the skeptical reader of the connection between Southall and Shakespeare. The third dedication by Southall addressed, quote, to my worthy good cousin, Master W.S. should prove decisive. Should the skeptic point out that Southall must have known others with the same initials as Shakespeare, notwithstanding the significance of his being a cousin, the connection with poets and the apparent punning reference to Will, there is yet more evidence that surely puts the Shakespearean connection beyond doubt. When Southall's poems were published shortly after he was brutally executed, uh, in 1595, the dedication was shortened so that it was addressed merely to my worthy good cousin. The reason for the commission of the name is obvious enough. Southall was a pariah in the eyes of the state, vilified for his treason, uh, treason in inverted commas, his Catholic faith, and Master W.S. would no doubt have been similarly vilified should his identity become known. This is therefore significant that the name does not appear finally appear in, a, in an edition of Southall's poems until an edition published in 1616, the year of Shakespeare's death. It was only then that Master W.S., the Martha Jesuit's worthy good cousin, was finally beyond the reach of possible persecution. There is further corroborating evidence of the connection between Shakespeare and Subtle in the dedicatory letter that Shakespeare wrote to Southampton for Venus and Adonis. Right Honourable, I know not how I shall offend in dedicating my unpolished lines to your lordship, nor how the world will censure me for choosing so strong a prop to support to weak, so weak a burden. Only if your honour seem but pleased, I count myself highly praised and vow to take advantage of all idle hours till I've honoured you with some greater labour. But if the first heir of my invention prove deformed, I shall be sorry it had so noble a godfather and never after ear, in other words, plough, so barren a land. For fear it willed me still so bad a harvest, I leave it to your honourable survey and your honour to your heart's content, which I wish may, may always answer your own wish and the world's hopeful execution. Your honour's in all duty, William Shakespeare. The key here, perhaps, this is me, key here perhaps lies in the apology for the nature of the poem and a promise to produce some graver labour. 
This, of course, is exactly the Robert, what Robert Stover had urged that he do. I'm going to move on to concluding this now. Yeah, I'm going to move on from there just because we need to make progress. So what we see is that uh, there's a connection, and I show this in the in actually in this book. There's a whole appendix called um, the Jesuit connection, which I could loads and loads of evidence. But we see that Shakespeare's poetic voice was influenced by his friendship with and his respect and reverence for um, the martyr Sir Robert Southall, who was a best-selling poet. And we do need to remember this, by the way, that in Shakespeare's time, poets were the best sellers. There were no novels. The first novel is normally reputed to be Don Quixote. Uh, that, that was published in 1606, same year that Shakespeare was uh, uh, writing Macbeth. But, you know, so up until then, poets were the best sellers. So Robert Southall's poetry was the best selling work. We know that even Queen Elizabeth I read it. Shakespeare certainly did. We know that because he alludes to it in various uh, of his plays, um, as we shall see. So I'm going to move on now to the sonnets, just a handful of the sonnets, just to look at what he's doing here. Um, so sonnet 23. I'll read the whole sonnet because it only takes about 30 seconds and then we'll talk about it. As an unperfect actor on the stage, who with his fear is put besides his part, or some fierce thing replete with too much rage, whose strength's abundance weakens his own heart, so I, for fear of trust, forget to say the perfect ceremony of love's right. And in mine own love's strength seem to decay, o'ercharged with burden of mine own love's might, Oh, let my books be then the eloquence and dumb presages of my speaking breast, who plead for love and look for recompense more than that tongue that more hath more expressed. Oh, learn to read what silent love have, hath writ, to hear with eyes belongs to love's fine wit. Now, you'll be, unless you know that sonnet well, uh, it'd be understandable if you don't necessarily know what's going on there. So I will... Uh, um, explain first of all uh he, the first four lines of poem about the fact he lives in fear um and guilt that arises from the fear so line five so i for fear of trust forget to say the perfect ceremony of love's right well that sixth line there is the perfect definition of holy mass which is the perfect ceremony of love's right and i would say by the way uh, the Shakespeare loving puns, uh, right spelt both ways, right as in ritual and right as in R-I-G-H-T. It's love's right because God is love and it's his right. It's also his right. So he, he forgets to say, why? For fear of trust. At every Catholic mass, there were spies. Elizabeth's spy network was, um, was extensive and powerful. Many people feigned conversion so that they would be in the Catholic network and would be told about mass and they would then report back who was at the mass. So, of course, it was tempting to not risk going to mass. Um, and that seems to be what Shakespeare's saying there. And that's what he says, by way of almost an apology, oh, let my books be then the eloquence and dumb presages of my speaking breast. As I can't speak out openly as, as a Catholic in the, the, the tyrannous regime in which I find myself, I hope that my books and others of my plays, my poems 
will be the eloquence that expresses uh, what's deepest inside me. And then we have this wonderful line. Um, so I let my books be then the eloquence and dumb presages of my speaking breast who plead for love and look for recompense more than that tongue that more hath more expressed. This is seen by many writers, and I think it's inescapable as a punning reference to St. Thomas More. The word more is used three times in that one line. And if you were to, to, trans, to capitalize either the second or the third more, um, the whole meaning of the line changes. More than that tongue that more hath more expressed, or more than that tongue that more hath more expressed. Then it finishes, oh, learn to read what silent love hath writ. To hear with eyes belongs to love's fine wit. You have to learn to read between the lines or beyond the lines. You have to see the signs, the puns, the double entendres, the references uh, to, to puritans. Because, by the way, in Shakespeare's time, it was illegal to talk about uh, contemporary politics or religion on the stage. So Shakespeare is forced by censorship to find ways to, to express what he, wants to, what he wants to say. Now let's move on to the next, um, next sonnet. I'm just going to look at just four of the sonnets. 73. I'm not going to read the whole of 73. I just want to read the first four lines and comment. That time of year thou mayst in me behold, when yellow leaves are none or few do hang. Upon those boughs which shake against the cold, bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. So again, this, this particular line here, the bare, the, the, the cold, bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. So obviously a reference to the uh, ruined monasteries that are now all over England. They're having been destroyed by Elizabeth's father, Henry VIII, uh, 70 or so years earlier, 60 or so years earlier. Um, the sweet birds, of course, like the sweet birds sang or the monks. And then the next song, and that was 73. So 74 here has a pun, which is going to relate to the poem, The Phoenix and the Turtle, which we're going to spend some time on. Um, but this one begins, but be contented when that fell arrest without all bail shall carry me away. My life hath in this line some interest which for memorial still with thee shall stay. When thou reviewest this, thou dost review the very part was consecrate to thee. The earth can have but earth, which is his due. My spirit is thine, the better part of me. So then thou hast but lost the dregs of life, the prey of worms, my body being dead, the coward conquest of a wrench's knife, too base of thee to be remembered. The worth of that is that which it contains, and that is this and this with thee remains. Several scholars have, have connected uh, the third line then. Uh, sorry, let's start read the first three lines. May, but be contented when that fell arrest without all bail shall carry me away. My, la my life hath in this line some interest, which for memorial still with thee shall stay. Uh, whereas we see more than that tongue that more hath more confessed, uh, my life hath in this line some interest. Uh, Anne Line, Saint Anne Line, uh, was a, 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 a martyr who sheltered priests in London, and I and I show in my various books how the, the Catholics in London 
were by nece of necessity such a closely knit community that there's no way that Shakespeare would not have known, almost certainly known of, absolutely definitely, St. Anne Lyon, who was a very courageous uh, woman um, who sheltered priests and was eventually arrested and hanged for it. She's now one of the canonized martyrs of England and Wales. So, uh, so after they talk about the, that fell arrest without bail, well, I've had in this line some interest. And you'll see it when we come to, to um, the uh, Phoenix and the Turf in just a moment. But I want to finish the discussion of sonnets with one of my favorites. And there's no hidden message in this, not, not that I'm aware, but it's a wonderful condemnation of the sin of lust. I don't know. It's, only, it's, a, it's obviously a sonnet. It's only 14 lines long. I don't know of any other uh, place in literature that so succinctly summarizes and condemns the sin of lust. The expense of spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action until action lust is perjured, murderous, bloody, full of blame, savage, extreme, rude, cruel, not to trust, enjoyed no sooner but despised straight, past reason hunted, and no sooner had past reason hated as a swallowed bait on purpose laid to make the taker mad. Mad in pursuit and in possession so, had, having, and in quest to have, extreme. A bliss in proof and proved a very woe, before a joy proposed, behind a dream. All this the world well knows, yet none knows well, to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. All right, now we're going to get to this very interesting poem, and I'll probably this will take the, the, the I'm, I'm guessing the remainder of the first part of the part of the, the lecture, and then the second half we'll be looking at some the poetic voice as seen in some of the plays, and looking at some of the some of the best known speeches, some of his most famous speeches. So this is the Phoenix and Turtle. Um, something strange has happened there. Um, you can still see me, right? Hear me more to the point. Just somebody raise your hand. We got you now, Joseph. You're All back. Right. All right, thank you. So the Phoenix and Turtle. This was published in 1601, shortly 1601, uh, in a in a volume of poetry that uh, if it's what this one's in Shakespeare's name, the other poet poems and another another name. We don't know who he is. I suspect that he might be Shakespeare too. But this is this one's actually in Shakespeare's name. So the phoenix, of course, is the mythical bird that uh, that is consumed in fire and then rises from the dead from its own ashes. So there's something about the phoenix which symbolizes resurrection. The turtle here is not an amphibian, amphibious reptile. It's uh, the turtle dove. That's important to get that right, to get your imagery correct. So it's about two birds, the phoenix and the dove, or turtle dove. Um, and it's, um, it's very interesting because the first part of the poem is an epithalamium. In other words, it's a song... Uh, uh, that's extolling the beauties of marriage and specifically often actually a song that the bridegroom might sing to the bride. Shakespeare, by the way, many of his plays talks about marriage in this mystical ecclesiological sense of Christ being the bridegroom uh, and uh, uh, the church, the bride. 
But here is something different going on. So the first part of it is an epithalamian. So it's a it's a it's a it's a song about the joy, the beauty of marriage. But the second part is a threnos, as it's called a, a threnody in modern English, which is a, a dirge connected to a funeral. So the poem goes from a from a celebration of marriage to to, to a funeral. So many scholars starting you know, going back to uh, the Comtesse de Chambrun in the 1920s and John Finnis, excellent Catholic scholar at the University of Notre Dame and others have, have seen this poem, and I agree with them, uh, as a coded tribute to Anne Lyne, St. Anne Lyne, and her husband, Roger Lyne. And somewhere, please God, here we go, thank you, Lord. I didn't say that in vain, it was a prayer. Um, I, I, having... Ha, having um, Criticised Wikipedia earlier. This is just a printout from Wikipedia's entry. Wasn't <laughs> that line? Because it, it gives the facts of the life, and that's what I want to do here. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but basically she was she's about the same age as Shakespeare, born sometime in the early 1560s. She was the, the daughter of a Puritan, uh, but she converted to Catholicism, and she married someone, uh, uh, Called Roger Lyne, her her, ma her maiden name was Hyam, um, uh, and she married someone called Roger Lyne, who's also a convert to the faith. To the faith. Um, so Roger Lyne and William Hyam, that's Anne Lyne's brother, were arrested together while attending mass. Okay, so this is what taking back to what Shakespeare says that fear of attending mass. They were arrested together while attending mass and were imprisoned and fined. While William Hyam was released on surety in England, Roger Lyme was banished and went to, went to, uh, to Europe, I think Belgium. Um, Lyme received, Roger Lyme received a small allowance from the King of Spain, who supported England's beleaguered Catholics, part of which he sent regularly to his wife until his death around 1594. So Anne and Roger Lyme were separated by his arrest and exile. Um, and around this time, uh, a Jesuit priest, uh, Father Robert Gerard, opened a house of refuge for hiding priests and put the newly widowed Anne Lyne in charge of it, despite her chronic ill health. For about three years, Anne Lyne continued to run this house while Father John Gerard was in prison. He was eventually transferred to the Tower of London, where he was tortured and from which he escaped. His escape's actually a very dramatic story, but that's... Uh, another story. Uh, in his autobiography, he writes, after my escape from prison, Anne Lyon gave up manic. In fact, he doesn't use her name because that would be incriminating her at the time, but that's who she, he's referring to. After my escape from prison, Anne Lyon gave up managing the house. By then, she was known to so many people that it was unsafe for me to frequent any house she occupied. Instead, she hired apartments in another building and continued to shelter priests there. One day, however, was the purification of our Blessed Lady, she allowed an unusually large number of Catholics to hear Mass. Some neighbours noticed the crowd and the constables were, constables were at the house at once. So she was arrested on the 2nd of February, 1601. This poem is published later that same year. Um, and she's hanged um, just uh, three weeks later, on the 26th of February, 1601, uh, alongside two priests who were hanged, worn and quartered, a much more gruesome death. They did at least treat women uh, with a bit more mercy by hanging them. 
although Sir Margaret Clitheroe was, was crushed to death. And she said, she told the court that so far from regretting having concealed a priest, she only grieved that she, quote, could not receive a thousand more. Um, okay, so she was hanged as I said. So, Roger Lyne and Anne Lyne, both of whom I am convinced would have been known personally to Shakespeare, and certainly no doubt at all he would have known of them. This is his tribute to them, bearing in mind, of course, that he can't mention them by name because that would be punishable by death uh, itself. So the first part, the epithalamium here. I'm going to read each quatrain and comment upon it. Let the bird of loudest lay on the sole Arabian tree, herald sad and trumpet be, to whose sound chaste wings obey. It's been said that the bird of loudest lay here would be William Bird, who some of you, the music lovers amongst you will know. He um, is a perfectly, he's a contemporary of Shakespeare and very much similar to Shakespeare. And I talk, talk about this in my book, The Quest for Shakespeare. William Byrne and his wife were, were reticent Catholics. And just very, very briefly, um, a reticent Catholic was a, a devout and militant Catholic who refused to attend the state religion services and paid fines in consequence. Many of them also were imprisoned, uh, exiled or uh, martyred. William Byrd was a reticent Catholic, so was his wife, but he was still liked by the Queen. And the Queen actually sent her attorney general, the chief lawyer, to tell the authorities to leave him alone. So William Byrd was simultaneously composing music for the Queen's Chapel Royal. He was the official composer of the Chapel Royal, of her chapel, and at the same time composing masses. So you may know his, uh, his mass for three voices, his mass for four voices. So let the bird of loudest lay basically uh, use his gifts to mark music for what he's about to tell. But thou striking harbinger, foul, foul precursor of the fiend, augur of the fever's end, to this troop come not thou not near. But basically traitors, uh, the, those who serve the devil, um, don't come near to what we're talking about now. This, this is a marriage feast. From this session interdict every fowl of tyrant wing, save the eagle, feathered king, keep the obsequy so strict. So keep every fowl of tyrant wing away. Um, it's just the eagle, the feathered king that's allowed. I'm guessing that's Christ, but I don't know. But then let the priest in surplice white, that defunctive music can... Be the death-divining swan, lest the requiem lack his right. So let the priest in, in surplice white. That's fairly obvious, right? That defunctive music can. The mass is defunct, right? Uh, mark the music. Mark the music of the mass. It's banned. But let the priest in surplice white. That defunctive music can. In other words, even though it's banned, let the priest celebrate. Be the death-divining swan. So give the swan song. You know, the yeah, swan song is swan. According to fable, it, it doesn't sing at all, of course, the swan, but just before it dies, it's supposed to sing beautifully and then die. So this swan song, lest the requiem lack his rights. And right, this time it's spelled R-I-G-H-T, but obviously it's the same pun, the same double entendre, the requiem right, the right of requiem, requiem mass, 
And then, and thou treble dated crow that thy sable gender makes with the breath thou givest and takest amongst our mourners shalt thou go. The treble, I don't know what treble dated mean. I'm, 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 I, I, I haven't had time to look at John Finneson again, what he says, but the crows, definitely a Jesuit. The crows were, that was a nickname that the Protestants gave to the Jesuits because they were, you know, dressed in black and clandestine and, and what have you. So the treble dated crow is a Jesuit. So let the, let the, let the treble dated crow in his sable gown amongst our mourners shalt thou go. You can be amongst us. He's, at, he's probably the priest, in fact, who's saying the requiem mass. Here the anthem doth commence. Love and constancy is dead. Phoenix and the turtle fled in a mutual flame from hence. So this, I think, is the, the epithalamium, the marriage hymn to Roger and Anne Lyne, the phoenix and the turtle, the love and constancy, which is now dead. So they loved as, lo and this is a beautiful uh, on marriage, on the sacrament of marriage. So they loved as love in twain had the essence but in one. Two distinct division none. Number there in love was slain. So the two are one in the one flesh of marriage. They loved as love in twain had the essence but in one. Then hearts remote yet not asunder, distance and no space were seen, twixt this turtle and his queen, but in them it were a wonder. Okay, um, distance and no space were seen, is seen by uh, several scholars, including I think John Finnish, as a, an allusion to Euclid's geometry. That which has uh, distance but no space is a line. So here we have uh, Shakespeare's punning reference to what this poem's about, to Anne, and Roger line. So between them love did shine that the turtle saw his right flaming in the phoenix sight, either was the other's mine. Okay, so another reference to the right there, but the two basically being one in the right of marriage. Property was thus appalled that the self was not the same, single nature's double name, neither two nor one was called, right? They're basically united as one flesh in marriage. And then the final uh, words of the poem were actually said by reason, which is interesting in itself. Uh, so the, the, the last part of the first part, the epithalamium, the, the song of marriage, I'll, I'll just skip some just for the sake of it. Um, so this is reason, whereupon it made this screen. So this point, reason makes this screen to the phoenix and the dove, co-supremes and stars of love as chorus to their tragic scene. So reason now is going to lead the threenos, right, the funeral hymn for the requiem mass of these two saints, martyrs. Beauty, truth, and rarity Grace in all simplicity, here enclosed in cinders lie. Death is now the phoenix nest, and the turtle's loyal breast to eternity doth rest. Leaving no posterity, t'was not their infirmity, it was married chastity. So it was said that Roger Lyon and Anne Lyon uh, made a vow of uh, 
chastity that they would not actually consummate their marriage. So that's probably what that's an allusion to. Leaving no posterity, t'was not their infirmity, it was married chastity. Truth may seem but cannot be, beauty brag, but tis not she, truth and beauty buried be. So truth may seem but cannot be. So in, in, in Elizabethan England, they might be talking about the truth, but it's not the truth. Um, truth may seem, but cannot be. Beauty brag. I mean, Shakespeare in uh, King Lear talks about um, the gilded butterflies in the king's court, um, uh, the courtiers, flatterers. Beauty brag, but tis not she. Truth and beauty buried be. Truth and beauty are buried with these two saints. Then the final uh, verse, to this urn, let those repair that are either true or fair for these dead birds sigh a prayer. And I love that final line because it's, it has a double meaning. So on one level, for these dead birds sigh a prayer, pray for the souls of Roger and Anne Lyne. But also for these dead birds sigh a prayer, these dead saints are praying for you. For these dead birds sigh a prayer. They're already hearing your prayers and interceding for you. So a marvellous poem, cryptic, showing Shakespeare's poetic voice as a dissident in a tyrannical time. So that takes us right through the, the actual poetry as poetry of Shakespeare. We're going to spend the rest of the lecture on some of the most famous speeches from the plays. So, as I said, we're going to get to the plays and we take them in chronological order of composition. I think that's correct. So we're going to begin with Romeo and Juliet. And um, it's written about 1595, the year in which Sir Robert Southern was executed. It's my book, Shakespeare on Love, Discovering the Hidden Meaning. Sorry, Seeing the Catholic Presence in Romeo and Juliet. And I'm going to comment, um, and I am going to just read a couple of pages of the book because I, I, I can't say it better than I say it here. The, um, the scene of Shakespeare, first of all, when um, he first sets eyes on Juliet. So love at first sight. And what's what Shakespeare saying about this love at first sight? And then, and then we're going to go on to the famous balcony scene. Um, Actually, we're not going to go to Valkyrie. We're then going to go on to the uh, first kiss and indeed the second kiss between Romeo and Juliet. So this romantic scene, what is Shakespeare saying about this romance? So we're going to look at the uh, his lines that, that Romeo says when he first sets eyes on Juliet. He doesn't even know her name at this point. He just knows that she's beautiful. Oh, she doth teach the torches to burn bright. It seems she hangs upon the cheek of night as a rich jewel in an Ethiop's ear. Beauty too rich for use, for earth too dear. So shows a snowy dove trooping with crows as yonder lady o'er his fellow shows. The measured done, I'll watch her place of stand and touching hers, make blessed my rude hand. Did my heart love till now? Forswear its sight. For I ne'er saw true beauty till this night. From his insistence with religious fervor a few hours earlier that even the 
all-seeing sun had never seen a woman fairer than his Rosaline since the dawn of time. Romeo now ranks Rosaline amongst the crows in comparison with the snowy dove that he espies across the room. Forsaking or forswearing his former love is now at an instant in love with a woman whose name he does not even know. For romantic readers of the play, following their hearts and forsaking and forswearing their heads, this love at first sight is one of the most beautiful things in the play. It is as pure and passionate as it is impetuous and impulsive. It is truly momentous in the sense that it surrenders itself to the moment and will not be assuaged by reason, temperance or prudence. There can be no breaks on such a love as it hurls itself heedlessly into the arms of the beloved. A headless heart hurtling toward a breathlessly exhilarating consummation. Shakespeare, who invariably and unerringly perceives the human condition with the incisive insight of his genius, understands the exhilaration of the sort of love that Venus offers and which Romeo desires. Indeed, from, the moment on, from this moment onwards, the whole action of the play accelerates. It is noteworthy, for instance, that Shakespeare condenses the whole drama into five breathless days. Whereas in the poem, which is his source, the action takes place over several months. The question is not whether Shakespeare understands such romantic passion. It is what he has to say about it. We don't have to wait long. A few lines later, after a brief interregnum in which an exchange between Tybalt and Capulet reminds us of the perilous territory into which the lover is about to stray, Romeo approaches Juliet. He is as forward and forthright in his amorous advances as he had been with Rosaline, taking Juliet's hand before he's even spoken a word to her. This time, however, he finds the object of his desire receptive to his charms. Should, by the way, remind one of my favorite characters in Romeo and Juliet is a character we never see. It's Rosaline. And uh, she tells uh, Romeo in order to get rid of him, she's obviously not interested in his amorous advances, that she has a religious vocation. Now, we don't know whether that's true or whether it's just something he said to get rid of him. It worked, nonetheless. Um, so she's obviously feisty and more sensible than poor 13-year-old. And again, Shakespeare makes her five years younger than she is in the source poem. Shakespeare, by the way, is the father of a 13-year-old daughter when he's writing this. All significant facts. Um, this time, however, he finds the object of his desires receptive to his charms. The maiden does not withdraw her hand from his, and finding no drawbridge of chastity being raised to repel his advances, he raises the ante, moving from the touch of hands to the touch of lips. Now, this is a beautiful exchange here, which is actually a sonnet. Shakespeare composes a sonnet where the first quatrain um, is said by, by Romeo and the second quatrain by by, by Juliet, and so the whole thing up to the up to the moment of the first kiss is a sonnet. The man's the man's a genius. Uh, by the way, that doesn't mean he thinks it's lovely. He's actually satirizing pe the Petrarchan sonnet, where the 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 sonneteer, the poet, idolizes the lady often with with adulterous intentions. So, if I profane with my unworthiest hand this holy shrine, the gentle sin is this. My lips, two blushing pilgrims, ready stand to smooth that rough touch with a tender kiss. 
The rest of the exchange, which forms up to the first kiss, one of the most wonderful sonnets ever to grace the English language, warrants our close attention. Juliet. Good pilgrim, you do wrong your hand too much, which manly devotion shows in this. For saints have hands that pilgrims' hands do touch, and palm to palm is holy palmer's kiss. Romeo. Have not saints lips and holy palmers too? Juliet, I pilgrim lips that they must use in prayer. Romeo, oh then, dear saint, let lips do what hands do. They pray, grant now, let faith turn to, let faith turn to despair. Juliet, saints do not move, though, though grant for prayer's sake. Romeo, then move not while my prayer's effect I take. Thus from my lips by thine, my sin is purged and kisses her. Juliet, then have my lips the sin that thou that they have took. Romeo, sin from my lips, O trespass, sweetly urged, give me my sin again, and stills the second kiss. Whereas Romeo's opening lines, forming the first quatrain of the sonnet, had been seductively suggestive and sexually charged, Juliet's response, forming the second quatrain, baptizes Romeo wor Romeo's words with a Christian metaphor, reminding him that the hands of saints and pilgrims kiss, that is touch in prayer. The word kiss actually means touch. Uh, it's only called kissing because the lips touch. Romeo's libido is not to be deflected or deflated by his quarry's conventional piety. Have not saints lips, he asks, and holy palmers too. Again, he is rebutted with a gentle rejoinder that their lips, like their hands, must be used in prayer. Faced with this second defensive parry, Romeo's response becomes more impassioned, perhaps even strained with a hint of desperation. Oh, then, dear saint, let lips do what hands do. They pray, grant thou, lest faith turn to, to despair. With his customary hyperbolic abuse of religious imagery, he has already canonized the girl, assured of her virtue even before he is sure of her name. Furthermore, his hint that his faith might turn to despair if his suit is not granted reminds us uncomfortably of his earlier complaint that the chaste Rosalind could not merit bliss by making him despair. In other words, how dare she think she can get to heaven by making me miserable. Narcissism. It is likely at this point that one final and firm repost from his new love would elicit the same plaintive response from the desperate lover. Unlike Rosaline, however, Juliet is clearly attracted by Romeo's charms and is torn between chaste decorum and erotic desire. As the mysterious stranger manipulates her words to serve his amorous purposes, bestowing the first kiss, the girl's struggle with her conscience is strained to the limit. This kiss, almost certainly Juliet's first, is a new and strange experience, throwing her into confusion. Her conflicted emotions are aroused still further by another of Romeo's inappropriate religious images. Thus, from my lips, by thine, my sin is purged. The metaphor of the sinful kiss is taken literally by the naive Juliet, causing her to exclaim in alarm that she has indeed shared in the sinful act in permitting herself to be kissed by the stranger. Then have my lips the sin that they have took. A sense of sin is no doubt heightened by the erotic pleasure it had given her. Romeo, seizing the opportunity, manipulates her words once again to steal a second kiss. Sin from my lips? Oh, trespass, sweetly urged, give me my sin again. 
Although romantic readers of this scene invariably bestow maturity on the 13-year-old, and again, remember, Shakespeare has chosen to make her five years younger than in the source poem, enabling her to play her part in the intertwined sonnet with a suave savoir-faire belying her age. Shakespeare's use of the sin metaphor suggests a clear moral dimension to the exchange. The kiss does not merely transmit the sin metaphorically, it does so literally. The erotically charged Romeo has inflamed desire in the object of his advances, succeeding the Juliet where he had failed with the presumably more mature Rosaline. Unless we remind ourselves again of Juliet's age, she is 13, not yet 14. Since Shakespeare deliberately sets this play two weeks before Juliet's 14th birthday, he is making it abundantly clear that she is still a child. And then the judgment of, so the scene ends, the judgment of the chorus at the beginning of the following uh, act, the prologue to, to act two. The chorus, of course, is an impartial voice, right? I mean, every character has its character, right? Every character has its motives and its reasons for doing what it does. Um, so we have to judge what they say and what they do from the the, uh, the, the character, the judgments we make of them based upon the person that's being presented to us. But the chorus is impersonal. It's the nearest we get to an impartial voice. So what does the actual chorus say immediately after this first kiss and second kiss? Now old desire doth in his deathbed lie and young affection gapes to be his heir. That fair for which love grown for and would die with tender Juliet matched is now not fair. Now Romeo is beloved and loves again a light bewitched by the charm of looks. So what's the, the, they're saying? They're basically that the old desires lying on its deathbed. So Romeo's old desire for Rosaline is now dying. A young affection gapes to be his heir. It's not that, because in romantic readings of the play, it's almost that, yeah, well, obviously Rosaline is, that's not, healthy but this is true love right they 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 they, they, they distinguish between the two loves that Romeo has but it's not what the text of the play says the, the Shakespeare's poetic voice in this is clear that there's no difference except one said no and the other said yes that's the only difference um now old desire doth in his deathbed lie and young affection gapes to be his heir his heir just the next one that fair for which love groaned for and would die with tender Juliet match is now not fair. So Rosaline's forgotten, eclipsed, who cares? Now, Romeo is beloved and loves again. So again, it's not, we're two different types of love? No. So he, he, he's loving again in the same manner as he did before. And again, the final line here, alike bewitched by the charm of looks. Remember here that he didn't even know who Juliet was, didn't know her name, knew nothing about her. All he saw that she's a beautiful young girl. He's bewitched. He's not just bewitched, he's alike bewitched. In other words, he's bewitched in exactly the same way as he was with Rosaline. There is no difference, except that Rosaline put up a guard and Juliet, because she's a, a child, um, was overthrown. Now, I want to say a little bit before we move on, um, I want to say a little bit about the balcony scene in a moment, um, briefly, but the death scene, the imagery, if you remember, if you know Romeo and Juliet, 
Well, I, I should ask questions, but we don't really going to have time because I've got to cover ground in the last 25 minutes we have here. If we're going to have questions, it'd be a perfect place to ask a question, though. If you, know, if you remember how the, 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 the death scene goes, that Romeo believes that Juliet is dead. He's rash because she even comments about the fact she looks amazingly rosy in the cheeks for someone to stare. He doesn't sort of get suspicious. His usual, his usual spontaneous self. But what's he do? He hopes there's enough poison on her lips to kill him. So it, it was the return of the metaphor of the sinful kiss, right? Sin is, of course, poison. In Hamlet, the, 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 the poison on the edge of the sword uh, is is symbolic of sin. Uh, so the, the, he's hoping that he can again get more poison, more sin from her lips, and it might kill him. Suicide. Um, it doesn't, so he kills himself. And when Juliet comes to, what does she do? She stabs herself with Romeo's dagger. And I'll let the phallic symbolism speak for itself. Right? That basically, that Romeo's advances upon her and her succumbing to them has killed her. So he's using the same imagery, the same metaphorical language for their final kiss and their joint suicide as he does with their first kiss. All right, let's look at the beauty of the graveyard scene just very briefly. I just want to, just the beginning of it. I talk about this at great length in the book, but I'm just going to talk, uh, read a, the passage of how the, the famous balcony scene starts at uh, the beginning of Act 2, Scene 2. And then uh, one paragraph commenting upon it, and then we'll, we'll move on to The Merchant of Venice. By the way, I apologise for not being a Shakespearean actor. I'm sort of reading the verse, not acting it, so you'll, you'll, uh, you'll indulge me on that, I, I, I hope. But soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon, who is already sick and pale with grief, that thou her maid art far more fair than she. Be not her maid, since she is envious. Her vestal livery is but sick and green, and none but fools do wear it. Cast it off. Let's look what's being said there i think just the one paragraph should do it romeo's opening lines in the famous balcony scene are so familiar that we are swept away by the anticipation of what follows without lingering long enough to engage their meaning juliet is the sun the light by which romeo sees eclipsing all other perspectives who is in conflict with the envious moon equated with diana the goddess of chastity. Juliet is not only more fair than the goddess and therefore a worthy object of his idolatry. And by the way, the word of the idolizing each other, the word of idolatry is repeated throughout the play. Romeo wishes her to kill the goddess of chastity and cast off her robes of virginity, her vestal livery, which, quote, none but fools do wear. In describing Juliet's livery, her clothing, as Vestal, Romeo invokes another goddess, Vesta, to whom the Vestal virgins consecrated their virginity, taking a vow of chastity. In the Christian culture in which Shakespeare was writing, 
The adjective vestal was applied to any woman of spotless chastity, especially one who consecrates her life to religion, such as a nun. In stating that only fools live chastely, Romeo is reiterating the disdain for chastity that he showed in his lament over Rosaline's rejection of his amorous advances and in hoping that Juliet will kill chastity and cast it, in other words, her virginity off. He hopes that she will do what Rosaline resolutely refused to do. In this sense, Juliet is an anti-Rosaline, one who succumbs to seduction and faces the consequences. All right. Those died in the wool romantics are horrified with me, no doubt. But uh, you know, Shakespeare is uh, the father of Juliet and he's writing this play. He's the father of a 13-year-old girl. Uh, and that's the perspective we get, as well as, as well as being a Catholic father of a 13-year-old girl. And first year old Catholic girl, by the way, and her, 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 his, his daughter Susanna in 15, so in 1606, same year which Shakespeare wrote Macbeth, uh, was fined for her recusancy, for her Catholic devout refusal to go to Mass. So, um, all right. So let's look at the Merchant of Venice now. And I'm going to move to. It's not meant to be advertising. This is just for those who want to know more. Uh, this is my book, Through Shakespeare's Eyes, Seeing the Catholic Presence in the Plays. And um, uh, I'm going to be referring to this somewhat for the remainder of the, uh, most of the remainder of the lecture. So look at the Merchant of Venice, written a year or so after, um, Home and Juliet, 1596 to 1597. Um, and remember what I said about Shylock, that to Shakespeare's audience would have been a thinly disguised Puritan moneylender, Calvinist. And we have this very famous speech by um, Portia, the quality of mercy speech. So I'll give myself one of the most beautiful speeches of Shakespeare and I'm not able to deliver them as a good Shakespearean actor would. So forgive me butchering some of the most beautiful lines ever written in the English language. So Portia, Portia's quality of mercy speech. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throne monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above this sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute to God himself. And earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. Therefore, Jew, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy, and that, si that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. I have spoke thus much to mitigate the justice of thy plea, which if thou follow this strict court of Venice, must needs give sentence against the merchant there. So mercy, mercy, Portia tells us, is a gift of grace, quote, an attribute to God himself that droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven. It is twice blessed that it profits both parties in the transaction. 
the one who gives and the one who receives. Where mercy is present, there are no losers. Everyone is better off. On the other hand, the absence of mercy impoverishes both parties. The one who refuses to give it as much as the one to whom it is refused. Whereas the latter will suffer temporal impoverishment from the lack of mercy, the former will be cursed eternally, being refused the mercy from God that he had refused his neighbour. Therefore, if justice be our plea, we should consider the justice we render unto others and the mercy of which we are ourselves in need. Quote, we do pray for mercy, and that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. In the light of Portia's words, we should not overlook the way in which Shakespeare is punning on the words mercy and merchant, both of which are derived from the Latin word mercedum, meaning reward. Etymologically and ethically, a true merchant must be united with true mercy and should be granted should be grateful for the reward that such unity brings. Mercy and gratitude are indivisible, as is signified by their linguistic unity in modern French, in which merci means mercy, but also thank you. This is true economics, the knowledge of the economy of grace that governs the commerce and communion of all men. This is the true law of supply and demand that supplies all our needs and desires but, de- desires but demands our grateful compliance with our side of the bargain. This is the true sign of the hidden hand that governs all human transactions. This is the economics of love, the economics of Belmont. Belmont, by the way, for those who don't know the play, the whole of the Merchant of Venice is set on two levels, two planes of being. Venice, which is venereal, it's in the gutter, it's worldly, it's greedy, it's avaricious, it lacks mercy. And Belmont, literally the beautiful mountain where where the divine Portia lives, it's almost a place of magic, it's almost heavenly. Um, Where was I? before I rudely interrupted myself. <laughs> um, this is the economics of love, the economics of Belmont, the economics of the Catholic Church as manifested in her social teaching down the centuries. It is the antithesis of the economics of self-interest, the economics of Venice, the economics of the Enlightenment as manifested in the, in the implicit materialism of modern economic thought. Once again, Shakespeare shows himself a Catholic in his treatment of the controversies and struggles between Catholic tradition and Enlightenment innovation, one of which was John Calvin's um, uh, condonement uh, of usury, money lending. Uh, Large part of this play, of course. Considering the theological heights to which we have seen that Shakespeare ascends, we might also wish to ponder the significance of the phrase twice blessed in relation to the quality of mercy. If thrice fair, as a description of Portia, reminds us insistently of the Trinity, twice blessed, as a description of mercy, reminds us equally insistently of the incarnation, the real sign of God's mercy to mankind. The Trinity is thrice fair as three persons in one being. Christ is twice blessed as two natures in one person, the divine and the human. Thus Portia, is showing us that the mercy of God incarnated in the person of Jesus is the model and type of the mercy we must show to each other. 
I think we'll leave it there. Yeah, we'll leave it there. I could say more, but I won't. So I want to move on to the discussion of music, as I promised at the beginning in The Merchant of Venice, and to contextualize those few lines that I read at the beginning of the lecture. All right, so Jessica, this basic, this dialogue about music is towards the end of the play. This is the beginning of, uh, towards the beginning of the, the, the final act, Act 5. And Jessica is, is Shylock's daughter. So she's Jewish, but again, to Shakespeare's audience, she would be the daughter of a Puritan um, who's eloped with Lorenzo. And she's basically said that she doesn't understand music. She doesn't feel anything when, 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 when she hears, feels music because she's the daughter of a Puritan. So this is what Lorenzo is encouraged to try to explain it. The dialogue between Jessica and Lorenzo is interrupted by the announcement of Portia's impending arrival. Let me say another thing, by the way, interrupting myself again. Portia is one of the much strongest female characters in all of literature, uh, in all of history. Uh, she's holy. She's wise. She's smarter than all the male characters in the play. I'm tempted to say she's smarter than all the male characters in all of the plays. Um, so Shakespeare... Um, understands the female psyche and respects it. Um, Portia really is, is, is without equal. Um, Beatrice, perhaps, in Dante, um, but we don't really see too much of her. Uh, it's what Dante's thinking about her uh, rather than what she is. So I, Portia takes some beating, basically. Anyway, Portia's impending arrival, and we are not surprised to learn that Portia, on her way home, is kneeling and praying at holy crosses. That is at wayside shrines, uh, all of which have been uh, basically made illegal in England. And she's praying for happy wedlock hours. She has no one with her except a holy hermit and her maid. So this is Portia being sent up here. Uh, she, we're awaiting her return home. As we await the heroine's return, we are presented with a musical interlude in which Shakespeare, through the words of Lorenzo, sings a hymn of praise to the order and harmony of God's creation, and the workings of his providence. How sweet the moonlight sleeps upon the bank. Here we will sit and let the sounds of music creep in our ears. Soft stillness and the night become the touches of sweet harmony. Sit, Jessica. Look how the floor of heaven is thick inlaid with patterns of bright gold. There's not the smallest orb which thou beholdst, but in his motion like an angel sings, still choiring to the unhide cherubims. Such harmony is in immortal souls. But whilst this muddy vesture of decay doth grossly close it in, we cannot hear it. In these sublimely beautiful lines, we witness the metaphysics that Shakespeare upholds throughout his plays. And we witness also how this metaphysical concept of reality has placed a chasm between the profoundly Christian bard and his profanely post-Christian critics. For Shakespeare, the cosmos is neither the mere mechanism of the scientists nor the meaningless mess of the deconstructionists, but is, on the contrary, an ordered creation that communicates the sweet harmony of God's goodness and the ordered presence of his purpose. Repeat a few lines. There's not the smallest orb which thou beholdst, but in his motion, like an angel sings, still choiring to the young eyed cherubims. The music of the cosmos 
uh, the music of the angels has its essential existence in eternity and is therefore not measurable in purely material terms. The song of angels cannot be heard by human ears, nor can the music of the spheres, because such music speaks to the spirit and not to the senses. It is the music of God moving through his creation, the music of his image in his creatures. There's the divine presence. And it is present in human souls as it is present in the singing of angels and the harmony of the cosmos. Even if our mortality and our sinfulness makes us deaf to its promptings. Such harmony is in immortal souls. But whilst this muddy vesture of decay doth closely close it in, we cannot hear it. Although such immortals, although each immortal soul is part of the harmony of the spheres and partakes of its music, the shadow of the fall has fallen over mortal flesh, this muddy vesture of decay, and has deafened the soul to the music of which it is part. The vesture of mortality is muddy because it masks what truly lies beneath the glory and beauty of the immortal soul. Here we see that Shakespeare is yet again siding with the medieval scholastics in his understanding of the cosmos and the human soul's place within it. The music of the spheres is the substance of reality, that integral order of the universe that is unchanging, whereas the muddy vesture of man's mortality is an accident, philosophically speaking. That is, it does not exist except in its relationship of dependence on the substance. In other words, immortality is the real substance of man's humanity, whereas his mortality is the muddy vesture of decay that grossly closes in the immortal soul. The paradox is that man's mortality is mortal. It dies when he dies. Unlike the immortal soul, it's not permanent or unchanging. And this is why the soul is deaf to the harmony of the cosmos only whilst this muddy vesture of decay doth grossly close it in. Once the soul enters its true home in eternity, it will see reality as it is and not as it seems to be. And it is appropriate that Shakespeare includes a transparent reference to the Blessed Sacrament in the midst of this heavenly discourse. Look how the floor of heaven is thick inlaid with patterns of bright gold. The pattern is a small plate of precious metal upon which the consecrated host is placed during the sacrifice of the mass. And therefore its employment as a metaphor for the stars in heaven is suggestive of God's hidden but real presence in the cosmos and by way of analogy of his hidden but real presence in the Eucharist. As such, these two lines emerge distinctly as an indication of Shakespeare's Catholic faith and his eloquent portrayal of the music of the spheres. He is placing himself not only firmly on the side of the angels, but also on the side of Catholic tradition in the face of the scepticism of the emerging scientism of the Enlightenment. Far from siding with the skeptics, Shakespeare aligns himself with his medieval forebears, such as Boethius, who wrote about the Musica Universalis in his De Musica, and Dante, who employed the music of the spheres with unsurpassed splendor in the Divine Comedy in Paradiso. And then we get to, we get to and we'll finish with uh, the uh, 
part of the speech which we started with. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Having waxed lyrical on the metaphysical dimension of music and harmony, Lorenzo proceeds to employ music as a metaphor for grace. Since naught so stockish, hard and full of rage, but music for this time doth change his nature, the man that hath no music in himself, nor is not moved with concord of sweet sounds, is fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils. The motions of his spirit are dull as night, and his affections dark as Erebus. Let no such man be trusted. Mark the music. And I could end there, but I'm going to end with one other thing. That would be a perfect symmetrical place to end as we started. I'm going to ruin it now because I'm not Shakespeare. Uh, what I actually want to finish with just a look at Shakespeare's final play, just the final words from his final play, The Tempest. Shakespeare was basically forced into retirement um, because of the various Catholic references in his plays and the Puritans who obviously knew about it, were wise to it and had were closing in on him. There was a, a, a diatribe by the Puritan John Speed where he referred to um, a, a Jesuit martyr, Sir Robert, uh, Robert Parsons and um, Shakespeare as the Jesuit and his poet. Um, Shakespeare could see the way things were going, could see the rise of the Puritans. And um, I, I think all the signs are he, he was felt forced or intimidated or prud prudently, prudentially uh, required to, uh, to uh, retire early. The last thing he did in London, by the way, was to buy the Blackfriars Gatehouse. Uh, Blackfriars Gatehouse was, was, was part of Blackfriars, the Dominican house of religion in London, um, up until the dissolution of the monasteries. That gatehouse remained in Catholic hands from the 1530s until Shakespeare bought it in 1613. Um, so for 80 years, we know that from the property deeds. It was a known place for Catholic activity in London, it had secret passageways down to the River Thames. We know of many Catholic priests that hid there, and we know of um, uh, of uh, many raids upon, uh, upon the house, all documented. Shakespeare buys the house just before he leaves London, Secular biographers say that he did this as, a, as an investment, <laughs> as a worldly investment. Now, Shakespeare at this point had lived in London for 25 years or thereabouts. He never even bought a house to live in, let alone for an investment. And it wasn't because he couldn't afford it. Well, clearly he just bought one. But he bought the second largest house in the late 1590s. Uh, he bought the second largest house in Stratford-upon-Avon for his own family. And that was, that was the house to which he retired. So he wasn't short of money. He just didn't want to live in his own property in London. And one reason for that probably was because you could avoid paying the fines for recusancy if you were a tenant in somebody else's property. Um, but just when he's leaving London, he buys the Blackfriars Gatehouse and he stipulates that the tenant who's living there, someone called John Robinson, should remain the tenant uh, under the new ownership of Shakespeare. In other words, that the house is going to be used exactly the same way as it's been used for the past 80 years, basically, as a centre for Catholic activity. In the same year that Shakespeare buys that house in 1613, uh, John Robinson's brother uh, enters the English College in Rome to study for the priesthood. Uh, John Robinson is the only one of Shakespeare's London friends who's present Shakespeare's deathbed in 1616 and signs his will. So Shakespeare's last act in London 
which is after he'd finished this play, uh, was to basically ensure that this centre for Catholic activity would remain in safe Catholic hands. But as regards his final play, uh, I'm not going to say anything about it. We don't have time. I do want to leave time for questions. But he breaks all the rules of dramaturgy. He breaks all the rules of how to write plays when the protagonist of the play, Prospero, at the end of it, walks onto the stage. The play's over. Everyone's exhort omnis. Everyone's left. The play's over. And then he walks out by himself and speaks directly to the audience. That's something that you just that breaks the spell, right? One of the actors on the stage speaks to the audience. The spell is broken. That's the point. <laughs> Prospero is a magician in the play, and the spell is broken because here the, the, the voice of Prospero is the voice of Shakespeare. These are Shakespeare's final lines as Shakespeare to the world. And that's why I want to read them to finish. Now my charms are all overthrown, and what strength I have is mine own, which is most faint. Now tis true I must be here confined by you, or sent to Naples. Let me not, since I have my dukedom got, and part of the deceiver dwell is in this bare island by your spell. But release me from my bands with the help of your good hands. Gentle breath of yours my sails must fill, or else my project fails, which was to please. Now I want spirits to enforce, art to enchant, and my ending is despair, unless I be relieved by prayer, which pierces so, so that it assaults mercy itself and frees all faults, as you from crimes would pardon be. Let your indulgence set me free. Thank you. Do you recommend reading the like? Do you do you recommend reading or watching the play first before diving into the criticism of it? Um, especially, I know with a play like The Merchant of Venice, because you say that it's not always performed well, or. Um, and I know I've always heard Shakespeare's not meant to be read. He's meant to be um, performed. So what's the best way to go about reading or understanding the what's happening in the play? A, a great question. Uh, I, 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 uh, I remember watching a performance of The Merchant of Venice in Norwich in England, where every one of the Christian characters was was made a skinhead. Um, and in between their lines, they were spitting and kicking uh, um, Shylock. Uh, so the whole play was perversely inverted from its true meaning. So I, first of all, I say don't watch a performance of the play unless you know something about the producer and director, because you're going to get a completely perverse, probably in this day and age, completely perverse rendition of it. Is Shakespeare meant to be seen and performed rather than read? I would say... During his own time, yes, when everyone spoke Shakespeare's language and they and they knew all the topical allusions, such as Shylock clearly being a Calvinist. You know, we don't know that. Um, Shakespeare is meant to be read as well because his lines are so beautiful and they're so dense. And we looked at that Phoenix and the Phoenix and the Turtle poem there, all right? I mean, every single line is charged with double meaning. Um, that's a poem. That's obviously meant to be read. But but the same thing is true of the of the great plays. So no, you need you do need to read them. To answer your question, the, the, with the Merchant of Venice, there's an easy answer, actually. Uh the I, I edit the Ignatius Critical Editions. Um, and we've, we've published 27 
titles in that that series so far seven of which are shakespeare plays and of all 27 editions my favorite of all of them is the edition of the merchant of venice uh, and the reason for that is because uh well I, I won't pick it up now because um uh that the critical essays at the back are written by that they're, they're so they come into play from so many different angles. There's a, there's a, there's a wonderful essay by an economist uh, who looks at, at usury in, in Shakespeare's time and what, what it meant. There's a, a wonderful essay by a lawyer who actually you know, analyzes the trial scene and seeing what Portia's trying, Portia's trying to get Shiloh off. Um, you know, uh, and anyway, brilliantly reasoned. Um, so the Ignatius Critical Edition is an introduction to the play, which is by me, and then the, the whole text of the play, which of course you should read the whole play, but it's got footnotes that you can trust because they're not written by, you know, I, I've, I've just been reading recently a uh, 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 Folger Library edition of The Merry Wives of Windsor. I mean, reading the footnotes is like reading graffiti in a, in, in, in a men's room. Right, uh, you know, basically, you know, any fifteen-year-old can find a doublon tendre with every second word that's used, right? And that's what they're doing. I mean, it's just—I mean, the play's great, the footnotes are, are obscene. So, it, but they're not going to get that in Ignatius critical editions. Um, so then you say you've got the the introduction sets the scene, explains it somewhat. You read the play with the footnotes, and then you've got a selection of seven or eight uh, critical essays. If you read that, if you actually teach it to your children. And if you have any children older than the present one, she's probably got another 15 years before she's ready for the Merchant of Venice. Um, uh, that uh, We also do a study guide with it that has essay prompts and general knowledge questions and a, and a detachable answer guide for parents. Even if you have, don't know the play, you can set one of the essays and th th that will show what sort of things should have been in the essay. So you can even grade it yourself if you're a homeschooler, for instance. So there we are. That's, that's, that was a relatively easy question. So thank you. All right, Joseph, uh, Teresa is asking, um, because I think that this was um, sort of understood or the undercurrent of, of your talk, but, um, but maybe not, not explicitly put out there. Um, she's saying, so Shakespeare was a faith-filled Catholic and writing in basically underground code about fellow Catholics? Yes and no. <laughs> Um, the, the first thing is that you know, I, the, we decided that I wasn't going to give a lecture just on Shakespeare's Catholicism. I could do that. I'd give the biographical evidence in the first hour and the textual evidence in the next 45 minutes and have Q&A. That would have been a different talk. We wanted an introduction to the poetic voice of Shakespeare, and that's what I've tried to do today. So it was a different sort of lecture. So the evidence of Shakespeare's Catholicism uh, is, is manifold. I don't have time to to, to speak about it, but what I say very briefly, I have stood on the shoulders of giants. I, this is not my invention. I, all that I've done is I had to read dozens of books to get this evidence. I, I've been the compendium. I brought all this evidence together in one book. So the biographical uh, and historical evidence of Shakespeare's uh, Catholicism is in my book called The Quest for Shakespeare. The textual evidence for Shakespeare's Catholicism, in other words, the evidence to be found in the plays, it's in my book, Through Shakespeare's Eyes, both of which actually the question Shakespeare within a touch. But so those two books, if you want to know the evidence for Shakespeare's Catholicism, they're, they're good places to start. Not good places to finish if you want to carry on, but good places to start. Was Shakespeare writing in code? Yes or no. The finish in the turtle, clearly yes. Um, but I'm uncomfortable with the fact that, that, that Shakespeare's really writing cryptic code. He's not. He's brilliant 
dramatist. Um, that you have to read the place first of all as the story that's being told. Uh, and you can only go deeper from the story. You have to know the facts of the story before you can go deeper into its meaning. If you're just looking for a code, you're going to miss the story. If you miss the story, you will miss the point. So you have to read it as literature, right? Not as some cryptic code. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to mention any other books by anybody else. <laughs> but it's not, it's not the correct approach. The correct approach, and what I do in, 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 in um, the, the quest for, uh, in, through, through Shakespeare's eyes, for instance, a full-length book, I only look at three plays. But the reason is that I go through every play scene by scene. So you're looking at the truths that they emerge within the context of the whole story, not plucking individual lines out from nowhere with a cryptic reference in it. Because I could play devil's advocate and find other lines from the play which would disprove what you said. You can only actually prove Shakespeare's Catholicism by looking at the play in its entirety, in its integrity, in its wholeness. So that's why I said yes and no. I think that's fair enough. Um, we're getting some questions about age appropriateness for um, for Shakespeare's plays. Um, Kennedy was specifically asking about Romeo and Juliet, but I think you could broaden that out. Talk about some of his his more famous plays that that we would study. Yeah. So, um, for instance, let me give give a, a comparison, then give a difference. I've been astonished traveling around at conferences, particularly homeschooling conferences. And, and, and meeting uh, children, and that's the right word, name for, a, say, for instance, a nine-year-old who's on his fourth reading of The Lord of the Rings, right? And, and, and there's no problem with that, right? I'm, I, I'm amazed that someone can be on their fourth reading of The Lord of the Rings when they're nine years old. But nonetheless, Shakespeare's not true because Shakespeare's actually writing for an adult audience, not an adult audience in the modern word of adult, right? Uh, he's writing for grown-ups, and people have genuinely grown up, actually they've grown in virtue and knowledge and wisdom as they've got older and had experience. So it, it is true that that is not for children. So what I what I usually say is that for Shakespeare, age appropriateness is the Juliet test. That, uh, you know, that it, it, Shakespeare was the father of a 13-year-old daughter when he wrote uh, Romeo and Juliet. It's very important these days, particularly in our culture, for children to uh, read uh, within a teaching environment, otherwise they'll just get confused, um, uh, to be taught, I should say, Romeo and Juliet. So at the age of 13, 14, uh, as they're entering adolescence, because it teaches them the dangers of following biological, erotic desire uh, at the expense of virtue. Now, if we follow our loins, are not our head and our heart, we're going to be in trouble. And it, it, we, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a lesson that's dangerous to teach too late. So Romeo and Juliet, I would actually say, needs to be taught to adolescent boys and girls. Um, as regards to Lester Shakespeare, Julius Caesar about politics are also 14, 15. But for the most part, for most people, Shakespeare's high school material. Um, and not earlier, probably, because, you know, if you force Shakespeare down people's throats, they're going to be convinced by the age of 15 they hate him and they'll never read him again. And that's not what we want. For sure. Um, OK, Diane is saying her word for the day is epithalamian. Did I pronounce that correctly, Joseph? Bravo, bravo. Thank you. Thank you. Um, 
she's she's asking did did Jake, did Shakespeare use this in other plays? Oh yes, I mean if if if, if by that we mean um, using the marriage and the the the, uh, the 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 deepest meaning of marriage in in the relationship between Christ and His Church. If you have to get the right thing right, we get get things the right way around, right? Um, that the that Holy Scripture is not taking human marriage and then talking about the bride and the bridegroom. It's the other way around, right? The perfect marriage is between the bridegroom and the bride, between Christ and the church, right? And human marriage is meant to model itself on that perfection. So often in Shakespeare's plays, he uses that imagery of the bride. I'll give one example. I could give, I could give others. But um, at the beginning of King Lear, um, when Cordelia refuses to um, play the game that her father is demanding, uh, basically, whichever of my three daughters uh, convinces me that they love me the most will get the most of the land. And the other two sisters who don't love him at all say what he wants to hear and get the land. She, who's the only one that actually genuinely loves him, refuses, refuses to play the game. She chooses to love and be silent, uh, which is exactly what Catholics are doing in Elizabethan England, right? We're not going to play the game. We're going to love and be silent regardless of the consequences. She's exiled, as were many Catholics, through through their love. But in the whole imagery of that is that um, I cannot love Caesar, I cannot love my father, I cannot love the king more than I love my bridegroom. I haven't met him yet, but, you know, I, have, I, I owe that, that part of me to my bridegroom. And, of course, the imagery is, uh, particularly within the context of Catholics in Elizabethan England, well, actually it's a Jacobean England by this time, um, same thing, same persecution. Um, the, 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 it's the image is that I, I have to have to be true to the bridegroom as a Catholic. I have to be true to Christ as a Catholic, regardless of the consequence. So that imagery, that epithalamium, is is actually present uh, in, in, in many places. The marriage of Christ and the Church being a, a model of the perfection of human marriage. All right, we'll get you out of here with uh, with this one. In the interest of time, we'll we'll close it out with this question. Um, asking, do you have any other plays or sonnets that you would recommend for someone who would like to get a better understanding of Shakespeare's writings and see his his Catholicism in the plays? Well, the easiest answer would be to check out the Ignatius Critical Editions and begin with the seven plays we've already covered there, uh, which are um, Julius Caesar, Merchant of Venice, Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet, King Lear, Othello and Macbeth. Um, and then I can, I can recommend many others. The Tempest, I just, you know, but uh, it's what you, all of them. <laughs> But, you know, that wasn't the question. The question was, where do you start? I mean, I, I, I would begin, I mean, people ask me what are my favourite Shakespeare plays. Uh, I normally say depends upon the day of the week. Um, Monday, Wednesday and Friday, it's Hamlet. Tuesday, Thursday and the weekends, it's King Lear. So you start in one of, the, one of those two as adults, uh, I think, is, is good. And I would certainly, though, suggest the Ignatius um, Critical Edition to get the introduction and the essays and the other perspectives to make it easier for yourselves you're a tragedy guy uh or both of those are comedies <laughs> no actually seriously i mean if, 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 if a tragedy uh, in a classical sense of the word is uh the fall of a noble character through a tragic flaw, right? So the pride of Achilles. Uh, Hamlet and King Lear both end happily. King Lear ends with, with King Lear having a, a vision of the resurrected Cordelia. 
this this is this is not just happy in a worldly sense it's happy in an eternal heavenly sense and and Hamnet dies by laying down his life for his friends he's a, he's a Christ figure he begins in suicidal despair and ends as a Christ figure that's not an unhappy ending Joseph would you mind closing us in prayer Oh, I'd be delighted. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Lord, we thank you for this two hours we've had together. We pray that we might all be moved closer to you through the wisdom and beauty of William Shakespeare and his work. Um, and may all of us um, finally uh, attain to, to your presence in heaven. We ask this, Lord, in your name. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our Lady of Walsingham. Pray for pray us. Pray for us. St. Robert Southall. Pray for pray us. Pray for us. St. Anne Lyne. Pray for us, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ's church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.